Thank you for listening. This is Israel Rebound. Um, I'm Alan Potash in California, and I'm joined by my co-host and friend Liz Felstern in Jerusalem. Today is November the 5th. We are 30 days since the massacre that took place in Israel on October the 7th. It's still very difficult to process everything that is going on um, in Israel and around the world around this catastrophe. There's a custom in Judaism called Shloshim. So after 30 days of the mourning process, people try to come back to uh, reality or to normalcy. I don't know, Liz, if that's something that is happening in Israel as a collective country, as a collective of going through the mourning process from October the 7th and using Shloshim as a guidepost. Um, that's something I'd like to kind of discuss with you. But before we, I'll let that sit in your brain to kind of uh, process. But um, I also want to think about the hostages that are in Gaza, currently the 240-some hostages, and, and how the, the families are addressing this after 30 days. There's been very little communication or understanding of the status of those individuals, the babies, the children, the toddlers, the grandparents, the men and women. I mean, it's a large number of people that are being held captive. Anything that uh, you're seeing in relationship to how families are addressing this? Um, yes. And I think the the two topics that you just raised are actually quite connected. So we can start with the the latter, starting with the hostages and their families. So one, you're right. There's no new information. Um, these, you know, 242 odd individuals that are presumably being held in captivity. We have no new information about their whereabouts, about their health situation, about the um, you know, whether they're receiving any type of humanitarian care. Um, and also no concrete information about what are the negotiations and possibilities for their release, only the sort of vague assurances that conversations are being held. Now, that makes sense, right? If those conversations are happening clearly, you don't want to um, endanger the negotiations by having information leak out before it's time. But it's also a very difficult situation for the families to find themselves in. And what was new maybe in the past few days is that the families decided to uh, try to sort of take their their protest, their um their cause as they're trying to make it heard by both the Israeli public and the Israeli government to another level um by choosing to sleep in in tents in Tel Aviv outside of the Kiria, outside of the IDF headquarters, with the statement that, you know, we're not sleeping anyway. So we might as well not sleep here and together. Can I, can I jump in for a second? It, mm -hmm. It's a common practice in, in Israel 
when people are protesting or demonstrating in front of uh, prime minister's residences or government offices to protest and stay in tents. I know that depending on certain issues, it's there's a common sense of community gathering and staying set uh, overnight in, in tents. Are there lots of people sleeping in tents or is it just a few making a statement? Um, it is a large and growing crowd. And I think what's significant about it, I mean, you're right. It's not an unheard of tactic to sleep in tents outside of, you know, some public place to make your cause visible. But the statement of these families had, has been so far, you know, we're not going home until they come home. Um, and you know, we have no idea when that will be. I mean, this could be a long time. We hope it won't be. But that, you know, depending on how this plays out, could be a really significant thing, right? It's one thing to spend a few nights protesting, but to spend a long period of time with people of all ages and extended families um, is obviously a whole nother, you know, a whole other thing. I know that there have been many installations of uh, the first Shabbat. There were the, was the Shabbat table for the 200 people now. Uh, I saw it in Jerusalem. There were beds and cribs of the 240 people. So there's a there's a collective nature within Israel to support these families. Are you seeing from these uh, camping, these people in tents, are, are people supporting them? Are people coming and bringing food? Are people helping them with their day-to-day -day needs? Um, or are they out there by themselves? They are very much supported. Um, they're one of the largest supermarket chains in the country has taken it upon themselves to make sure that all of those families have, you know, food every day. And there are many other organizations involved as well. I, I don't think that those families are wanting for their physical needs right now. Obviously, you know, no amount of food and, you know, things like that can make up for what they're experiencing and what they're missing right now. But they are, um, I, I, I do believe that they feel, um, you know, enveloped by by the rest of Israeli society and not not out on their own. How they feel the government is relating to them could be another question because, um, you know, the government is in a very difficult situation of having to make choices about what to do in terms of the hostages and what to do in the larger military effort. Um, and which of those they're prioritizing, you know, should one come before the other? Are they at odds or are they one of the same, right? All of those questions are ones that the government is is grappling with. And I'm sure the families feel that, right? I'm sure there are families of hostages that feel that the government isn't doing enough, isn't sending a clear enough message that getting the hostages home is the number one priority. Um, yeah. Now, this whole 
topic of the hostages and their families, I think is very much connected to what was actually your your first question about the extent to which Israel is now starting or approaching something that would be akin to the Jewish concept of shloshim. Um, And I think the answer to that is, like most things, sort of yes and no. Um, You know, whether the religious concept of shloshim resonates with someone or they're just thinking of it in the sense of it has been a month, right? We're all very much aware of the amount of time that has passed since October 7th and and obviously thinking for ourselves on an individual and on a communal level, what does that mean? Where should we be one month in? How should we be feeling? And, but Shloshim is really about, as you said, a a return to normalcy and a, a next stage in the healing process. And it comes after a funeral and after Shiva, after you have that definitive closure. And, you know, we know about the hundreds and thousands of people that we've lost, some still not formally identified, um, which is a, a certain kind of closure. But we also have the hostages, which is the complete opposite of closure. And so as a nation, we're not really ready to sort of turn that page and be in the post-Shloshim period because we're still in the middle of the loss and we don't know what's going to happen with the hostages. So it's hard to, to start doing something that feels like recovery or feels like healing when you're still waiting to understand, I guess, the full amount of your, of your loss. I I think that's a a powerful statement that uh, that unknown, that uncertainty is so prevalent in what's going on with this crisis that most of us um, feel a strong connection to the hostages, even though you know we we see who they are through the the movement of bring them home with the posters, you know we have posters up uh, all over uh, the greater Palm Springs area. Uh, we're having a, a rally today in support of the hostages, but to your point, there there can't really be a recovery until they are just found, released, uh, discovered. Uh, we're kind of in a constant state of of um, mourning, in a sense, but it can't be a death because we don't know if they're alive or dead. So what what's that in between um, of dealing with a situation like this where you have 240 souls that are being held captive? We don't know if they're being treated well. We don't know their condition, but we know who they are. And we constantly want to be reminded of who they are. Yeah, I um, I don't know what the name for that is, right? I don't know what you call that extended period of just not knowing. I mean, we can all imagine that as one's 
sort of worse nightmare in some ways. Um, but people are are living it. It is a real thing that's happening now for 242 families. Um, and, and that is a very big number in a, in a country this size. I mean, I, I know we, I've said it many times, but, you know, in a society this small, a number like that touches everyone. Um, it's every every region of the country, every city of the country, every every age group, every you know demographic group of religious, not religious, Native Israeli, not Native Israeli. You know, um, it's all of us, and and that uncertainty is um, it. Um, gosh, I don't know what the word is. It, it it freezes you in a way. I mean, you're 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 stuck. You're in between. You can't start to do that recovery. You can't go backwards. You can't go forward. Um, is it a, a paralysis? Is that a word? Yeah, that maybe, maybe, yeah. Um, I you know you're supposed to try to get back to routine in some ways because it's healthy for you, and if you have kids, it's healthy for your kids, but. There's a lot of guilt connected to that. Um, and you're so even when you're doing it, you're sort of doing it half-heartedly with the knowledge that at any moment there could be some news. Um, if it's good news, great about the hostages, but there could also be, you know, bad news. And so you don't really know how much to move forward. I, you know, you're making, while you're talking, uh, some memories come back to me of um, what we used to do. Again, this shows my age, uh, to write letters on behalf of the prisoners of, of Zion who were in the former Soviet Union, the Refuseniks. And as projects, we would write letters to them. We would write letters to our congressmen. We would write letters to whoever we could to remind the world of these individuals who wanted to share their passion for being Jewish. And in in the process of doing that, they were imprisoned and marginalized uh, in the uh, former Soviet Union. And um, I'm afraid that... I've heard and I hope that it's true and continuing that people are doing similar things now on behalf of the hostages, right? Calling their elected officials every day. And reminding them, this is my top priority. This should be your priority too. You know, I am. So there is a parallel to to what yeah. you're remembering for sure. Right, and and I, I definitely think that the movement to bring the hostages home, uh, the poster, the kidnapped poster series is powerful. The installations of of Shabbat tables around the world, the installation of the beds. I mean, there are a lot of reminders. The, the challenging part is we as a society in the diaspora, as well as in Israel, need to continue to do that until they come home. And the symbolism of the tents in front of the Ministry of Defense or uh, other government offices reminds us that we can contribute on many levels to the, mem- to the I don't want to say memories, to the um, stories of these individuals.
for sure. Yep. You've, you've you've stunned me. I'm now uh, speechless. I uh, look. It's a hard thing to know what there is to say about it, right? We um collectively are waiting, hoping for the best, praying for the best, hoping that our elected leaders are making good decisions and that every possibility for bringing the hostages home is being explored with maximum pressure exerted in all the right places. Um, But most of us are not in a position to, you know, actively do that. Yes, what you're saying is is a wonderful thing to be doing, to keeping keeping the stories on people's minds, keeping the the fact that these hostages are in captivity and we want them to come home, right? Keeping that at the top of the agenda. But uh, but we all know that the actual work of bringing them home is something that is going to have to be done by others and so we can just hope and and pray. So the collect the the collective spiritual uh, work, you know, I don't know if you want to call it spiritual or prayer or whatever, but collectively putting it out there uh, that we see what's going on and that we want to make sure that they get home safely. Uh, so many challenging things that are going on uh, around this in, in Israel. Um, I'm always looking for something that's um, a little uplifting. Um, I I have not found anything uplifting. Have you found anything uplifting? You know, it's hard to find things that are uplifting right now. Um, But um, that doesn't mean that there isn't a lot of good that's being done. Right, the fact that we have hundreds of thousands of Israelis that have been evacuated from their homes and are staying in hotels for weeks and weeks on end is not a good thing at all. But they're in the attempt to, you know, care for them and meet their needs. There's a lot of good things that are happening. The fact that makeshift schools have sprung up in all of these cities where the evacuees are concentrated in Eilat, in the Dead Sea, in Jerusalem, um, in Netanya, you know, that that is a good thing. And there are teachers and principals who were retired or on a sabbatical um, who have come back to to run these schools um, to get them started, to make sure that they are, you know, happening in a professional way that you know, it's bad enough that kids can't be home, that they missed um, more than a month of school, um, you know, because kids are on vacation for two weeks before the before the war started. Um, but now everybody wants to, to do their best and to do right by kids and make sure that they have someplace warm and supportive to go during the day and that their parents have someplace to send them and take a breather themselves. Um, you know, there, there is good that's, that's being done. So the uplifting part of my request or my question to you comes from the support of how volunteers, how Israel as a country have risen to this catastrophe on many different levels. 
of volunteering, of providing for the uh, for others that they don't even know. Uh, yes, I mean, I think it's happening, you know, every day in a million and one ways. People that have volunteered to go and work on farms and, you know, donate every imaginable type of, you know, clothing and toys, right? People left their homes with nothing. Um, so all of that work is happening and in such a sort of wholehearted outpouring of just kindness and just genuinely wanting to help someone, you know, way that is, that is uplifting. So if we're looking for something uplifting, I think that that makes the mark. Well, on that note, thank you. Um, I think that's a good place for us to end today. Um, just continue to be be safe uh, for you and your family and everybody else. And I want to thank everybody for listening to Israel Rebound, you know, with our special attention on uh, Israel at war. Uh, it's a tough, it's tough to be here in America to see what's going on in Israel, uh, trying to do what we can to advocate for the hostages to support Israel. And for those who are listening, that want to find ways to help um, Israel, feel free to contact either Liz or myself. Um, you can do that in a variety of different ways. Since if you're listening, you know you know who we are. You probably know us. <laughs> um, but again, you know, wherever you are, call your elected officials and tell them to do what they can to free the hostages. Yes. So, thank Liz, you, everyone. Thank you, Liz.